If you have an interest in horses and love learning more about horses, the horse industry, teaching, or even managing your own horse business, then you're in the right place. We would love you to join us on our mission, which is to improve the lives of horses around the world through the education of riders, handlers, and trainers. So get comfortable, listen in, and enjoy. This is another of our popular Listener's Choice interviews, which we're playing over the weekend. We've chosen the most popular interviews for you to select the Listener's Choice winner. If you're not sure how the Listener's Choice competition works, have a look at horsechats.com slash choice for the rules and the leaderboard. Horse welfare and safety are of utmost importance where humans have any interaction with horses. Within the courses at International Horse College, we only utilise methods that promote safe and humane ways of interaction between horses and humans. We only support safe methods of educating riders, handlers and trainers about horse welfare. Internationalhorsecollege.com, registered training organisation 31352. Today we're going to introduce Carolyn Colby. Carolyn's had a lifetime of horses. She's riding at Grand Prix. She's teaching, training and judging. And she's also bred and run some major equine events. How are you today, Carolyn? I'm well, Gwyneth. How are you? Great. Look, normally I say good, wonderful, you know. I'm just going to say fantastic. Absolutely stunning. <laughs> <laughs> just to change it around a bit. Yeah, yeah. All right. That's Ka- a good idea. Yep. Carolyn, we normally start off with a an inspirational quote or a quote that you often use teaching. Have you got one for us? Not necessarily one I use teaching, but I do say it to people on occasion and I use it for myself. Feel the fear and do it anyway. <laughs> That's a good one. Yep. Yep, mm. It's certainly talking about pushing the boundaries and I think, you know, we yes. have, haven't had that one before, I don't think, but we've had some along the same sort of lines, you know, that if you want to succeed, it, there is a bit of fear in it sometimes. You've got to push yeah. the boundaries. You've got to do it anyway. Yeah. Yep. Life with horses is not very cushy all the time. Yep. Especially- oh, well, I mean, life isn't necessarily cushy and if you're not prepared to take a risk doing, t- you know, you have to take risks sometimes and sometimes the risks work and sometimes they don't. That's right. Otherwise it gets you know? a bit boring. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. All right, Carolyn, you've had a lifetime of horses. I know you've been in horses a long time, but how did you actually start with horses? I can vaguely remember, I came from England when I was three, and I can remember horses in the racing stables before I actually came to Australia. So, you know, it's been quite a long background. As a child, I didn't ride very much. I lost my nerve when I was around about 12 and sort of then started riding again and finished sixth form or year 12 as it is now and needed a job and I was lucky enough to be having lessons from June James who organised that I got a job with Malcolm Barnes at Oakwood and um, basically I've never got out of the horse industry. (laughs) (laughs) I'm interested about losing your nerve, you know, because you're a coach now, right? And you, you know, as a coach, you can see potential problems and how people could lose their nerve but how people could get back into it. So how did that happen and what did you do to get over it? I had, well, we had borrowed ponies and, you know, there were four children and one or two ponies or horses between us and, mm-hmm. you know, I was run away with a couple of times and had one or two falls that didn't feel very much fun and, and I sort of, mm, I don't think I really want to do this and then some time later one of my friends in the district said, oh, I'm a much better rider than you are <laughs> <laughs> and I went, well, of course you are because I don't even ride. So I started riding. <laughs> That's good. good. That was certainly a challenge for you, wasn't it? You know, sometimes well, people... Well, you never that... know what's going to motivate someone. So, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
good. And then you're lucky enough to go on and get a job with Malcolm Barnes. What was the position that you had with him first? I was just basically stable hand, whatever. You know, we had horses in work, school horses, horses that came to be bred and all those things. And, I mean, I knew nothing when I went there and I probably know less now, but you sort of just, it evolved and I was there for six years. Mm-hmm. So it was a like my apprenticeship, really. And so during that time, so, you know, I'm just sort of trying to give people a bit of an idea about jobs in the horse industry and careers in the horse industry. So you started as a stable hand. You said you learnt quite a lot while you were there with him. What things then did you progress to that you may not have been allowed to do or able to do when you first started to then what did you progress to throughout that time? Well, I don't think there was ever any not allowed to. I mean, that stage at Oak, we worked six days a week and it was seven till when we finished and everything that had to be done had to be done. Horses had to be fed, bears had to be bred, horses had to be got ready for lessons and at some point, you know, we all had to learn, start teaching um, because we had to justify our wages. I mean, we weren't really highly paid, but you had to sort of be producing an income as well. Mm-hmm. So we all had to start to teaching. And at that stage, I thought teaching was an absolute nightmare because I was very shy. You know, trying to help other people to learn things that you were sort of just, you know, knew a bit of yourself. But under supervision was great because at least you learnt what you were doing that was correct, what you were doing that wasn't correct, and progress from there. And certainly from a point of view, I mean, I find this very difficult nowadays because there are people who go, oh, I want to work with horses, I want to go into the horse industry, and then they go and, you know, they have to basically serve an apprenticeship and they can't cope with the fact that they think they should be being paid highly when they're learning skills that they don't have. Mm. And as I often say, if you're going to university, you go and have to have a second job while you're at university to support yourself. University doesn't pay you to learn. Yes, yes, yes. And there is quite <laughs> a lot to learn going from an amateur rider into being a professional within the industry. There is. Yeah. Yep. Yep. And, 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 and if you want to be a professional, just, you know, remember it's going to be, it's hard work. I mean, it is much as there are 30 hour weeks or whatever they are in the horse industry. And certainly if you're running your own business, such a thing doesn't exist. Mm. What do you think then when people first start, what do you think the core skills are that they need? Because you said you were quite shy and you had to, you know, what did you find inside yourself that you thought, right, well, I've just got to get out there and teach because otherwise I can't keep working in this industry. What core skills do they need to have to start? Basically, to be involved in the equestrian industry, you have to be hardworking. You've got to be prepared to, you know, make mistakes and get on and keep doing things. When things don't turn out right, be prepared to ask for advice. Try and ask for advice before you need it. It's probably quite good, especially if you're prepared to listen to the advice. And I think basically just perseverance, you know, keep knocking on the brick wall and one day it might fall over. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Oh, that's good. And the whole thing about making mistakes and learning from your mistakes sort of goes back to your quote that you'd said earlier, you know, about having the, um, I suppose, wanting to do it, you know, pushing yourself out to those boundaries and making mistakes and just getting up and moving on from there. Yep, yep. Well, and I remember it was actually the first year I was working. There were three or four of us working at this place and one of the other girls said to me one day, so-and-so never gets into trouble because they never do anything. And I thought, oh, that's quite quite an apt way of not making mistakes. Don't do anything. Yeah, So if you do stuff, you're going to make mistakes. But, you know, you try not to make them life tragic mistakes. Yep, 
Yep. Yes, and if you don't want to make mistakes, you could just be a groom for the rest of your life and just, you know, be filling well, up water buckets. Well, even and... as a groom, you're going to make mistakes. You know, you, yes. you certainly will still have can mistakes. Can make some. I mean, mm. Mm. grooms can be responsible for some extremely valuable merchandise. <laughs> yes, yes. Okay, now you've said about Malcolm Barnes. Who else has influenced you? Well, obviously Malcolm was a major influence because I was there for so long. Yep. And even these days, I come back to things that Malcolm said to me. Mm-hmm. Then I worked for Art Utendale for a short time, and he sort of oversaw my time when I was working for Ralph Grosby with the Hamburg Stud at Flowerdale. And I think nearly everybody that I've come against in the industry in different areas, I mean, different experts, you learn stuff from all of them. I mean, these days, I have a lot of connection with Big Bev Chug, who was Bev Edwards with JB Farm. Mm-hmm. And, you know, again, I'll ring her and, you know, she doesn't always agree with what I'm thinking, but, you know, she's a very smart operator and, you know, has vast experience. And so when she says something, I have to think about it. Um, you know, various coaches that I've worked with, again, they bring things to the table. And I read, try to keep up with stuff online and all those things and go, oh, yeah, that's, you know, relevant to what I'm trying to achieve at the moment or what I haven't achieved at the moment. Mm. Mm, okay. And what about horses? Horses that have influenced your horses that you've learned from, horses that you think you probably couldn't be where you are today if you didn't have those horses or have anything to do with them? Yeah, I've been very fortunate in that I've had a, a lot of horses, well, a lot of good horses of my own. I've also been very fortunate because I've taught a lot of good riders and successful riders and helped them with you know their skills and their horses. And so I've had the opportunity to ride horses that have gone to the Olympics and World Games and things like that, although they weren't actually my horses, more particularly event horses than anything, or and ridden some horses that have gone on to do great things as older horses, ridden them as, you know, four-year-olds and five-year-olds and that sort of thing. So, you know, different horses have different influences on you and some of the horses that may have had the most influence, I may not have ridden more than once or twice, but they've just given me a sense of something or a feeling for something where I go, oh, I want to find that again. <laughs> Okay, now out of all those horses, all the riders you've coached, everything else, what's been your proudest moment? Uh, probably I used to teach Sam Griffiths when he was in Australia and until he went overseas in the early 90s and when he won badminton two years ago and when he went to the Olympics and was fourth last year in the eventing, I think they were some of the most exciting things. Even now it makes me emotional. <laughs> That's great. Yeah, yeah. All right. Now, I'm going to go and I want you to put your coach's cap on at the moment and think about a common problem that you come across training or a common problem that you see when you're judging or you see at competitions. And I also want you to talk about how people can fix that problem. I think one of the most common problems is everything takes time. Mm-hmm. But the fact that it takes time doesn't mean that it's not going to happen either because you see both sides of that coin that there are people who are very impatient and, you know, sort of go, oh, I've had the horse three days and it's not doing this yet. And you go, well, it won't. But similarly, I know people who are far too patient and they will persevere and persevere and persevere doing something that hasn't been working, is never going to work for them and they need to make some radical changes and they don't. But then sometimes that's because those people are very happy in the place they're in, even though they don't say they are. So, yeah, I... I think basically you need to be able to be flexible, but you need to know that you're following the right pathway. Uh And certainly uh 
sometimes people don't have, you know, they need to have the coaching backup that they need and make sure that they make enough use of that coaching backup, you know, that you don't have to agree with everything a coach says and when you don't agree, you need to be able to discuss it with them and find out why you are not agreeing and, you know, it may be that your the student's perception is wrong, it may be the coach's perception is wrong. Mm, mm. And all horses are different too and people come in from different points of view because of their oh, horse, All horses experience. are different but so are all people. Mm. Mm. I mean, it's hard because physical blocks in the riders create physical blocks in horses and, you know, the blocks in the riders are what are really relevant Not so, because if you can get rid of them in the riders, it helps for them to then allow the horse not to have the blocks. Yeah, yeah. That's interesting, that comment. Do you want to speak any more about that, just about the people having blocks and, you know, even, even just drawing from your experience, making a bit of a case study about anyone yeah. that's had a bit of a block and... Yeah, I certainly would say it. Um, I think it was four years, five years ago now, I ran a clinic with Tanya Mitten for the first time. Yes. And it was very interesting because, you know, she's very good with the mindset stuff. She's also really excellent on how to alter your body to sort out why horses are having various problems. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, I've come from a history of having, you know, issues with my body anyway and then having a few fairly serious accidents. And having had to ride in a ride with pain and through pain over quite long periods of time, and you know your body becomes used to anticipating pain and all those sorts of things. Anyway, when I first started with Tanya, I'd done a lot of work with a Pilates physio, and Tanya said a couple of things to me, and I went, "Oh, this is like another revelation that just made a whole lot of things a lot clearer and easier." wasn't that I necessarily could do it all straight away, but over time. It's been really helpful to take that stuff through into my teaching and training, training for myself and training for riders as well. Mm, mm. And it's nice that um, as a coach, as an equestrian coach, you can bring in other things that can complement what you're already teaching anyway. So that's good. Well, as a coach, and I think, I mean, there's often this thing about whether you're an instructor or a coach, Mm. but certainly thinking as a coach, you've got to access various different facets of other modalities so certainly I've worked for quite a long time at one stage with a psychologist I've worked with physios chiropractors you know this is for humans chiropractors Pilates physio you know various mindset stuff meditation stuff and it's necessary to be able to say to someone you know problems you're having may not actually be because of what you think they are I mean I had a a problem back in winter where I was thinking, God, I'm getting really nervous really easily, da 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 And after I went to one competition where I nearly fainted after I rode every horse and went to the doctor and found out I was extremely anemic, I went, and it was very strange how I wasn't <laughs> half as nervous once I was anemic anymore. Yeah. And I had yeah. a client who was basically having a bit of a similar issue with nerves. And I said to her, you know, I think you really need to go and get a blood count done. And her blood count was also low. So, okay. you know, it's it's sort of interesting where you could go, oh, you know, grow a, pair, grow a bit of guts and just get on with it, or you've got to go, well, the person's quite gutsy, and if they're feeling like that, why is there some other thing that's triggering it? Oh, hang on a sec. Let me interrupt to let people know about the horse industry qualifications at onlinehorsecollege.com. If you have a look at the flexible options, there's online theory with practical components that can be completed by video 
or with a qualified expert in your area. That website again is onlinehorsecollege.com. Thanks. Okay. Carolyn, just going back to the major events that you've run, if you're going to run a major event and, you know, a state or a national event, how much leeway do you need? How much time? If you're going to run the event, how much notice do you need to say, right, I can pull this together? Ideally, it needs to be a 12-month lead-in. Mm-hmm. So when the event's being run one year, you need to be ready to be thinking about what you're doing with it next year. However, the first major event I ran was Dressage with the Stars in 2000, and we started organising that. Well, I came on board to try and start organising that in June, and we ran the event in November, end of November. Okay, that's, that's pretty tight. Mm. It was tight, mm-hmm. and I don't really know how – well – you know, I did have good people helping me, but it was very much leaping in the deep end and going, oh, yeah, I can do this, and then paddling madly. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. All right, so so just say you've got an event, you've got 12 months lead-in. How do you divide the jobs up? How do you just say can, you can work on this and divide the different sections up? What are the major sections or major parts that you need to organise? Well, saying, if I'm the event director, the first thing I need is a good secretary. The yep. second... Then you need to go through categories like the hospitality, the who's going to do media stuff. That's absolutely major component. The events I've run have been for Equestrian Victoria, so it's a big volunteer component. So you need someone who's good at coordinating volunteers. I mean, you need a treasurer. You need, you know, basically you need everyone you think you need and then some more of them. And you try and look around and try and find the best quality people that are also prepared to work for very little or no reward, no financial reward, but the quality people that you know, if they say they're going to do a job, they'll take it on and they'll run with it and they'll keep you in the loop where they need to. All right. So to run, I mean, you've got to have a certain amount of leadership skills for that. What do you think has helped you in the past or what sort of traits do you think you have that give you those leadership and team building skills? Because you need to build a team, you need to build a team around you and as you say, if it's running in a volunteer capacity, that becomes even harder because it's not quite like a job where people can say, I don't want to walk out because I need the money. They're not getting paid for it. So how do you pull people together? What sort of things do you do as a leader to keep your team going? I suppose and certainly I ran the major events. I'd run events at club level and I suppose you just sort of expand that scenario. You try and develop a an ability to ask questions you need to ask and grab the help that you need. I was lucky that I had the chairman for Dressage Victoria when I was running the event recently was Susanna Clark and she was always a really, really good backup. And You need loyalty from the people above you and you try and give loyalty to the people below you. And I think it's a matter of making sure that they know that they are important and that you respect their opinions and their advice. You don't necessarily, it may not necessarily be quite how you would do something, but so long as the outcome comes about, that's good. And you try to make sure that people all get on with each other, which isn't that hard if you remember the concept that's like, We're all working together on a committee. We don't actually have to live with that person or go and sleep with them or anything like that. We just have to be able to work with them, you know, on a Mm. social type level. And you need to make sure that the people feel that everything's fair. You know, I mean, I probably erred on the side of 
being too hands-on, being prepared to do the hard work and all those sorts of things as an event director, rather than feeling I could swan around with the frock on and stay all nice and tidy. But then people respect you for that. You know, I'm sure that if I'd been glamorous and whatever, they might not have worked as hard for me as they did. And basically, as I said, just being lucky enough to make sure that I always had teams of really, really quality people. The issue is that you can have a great team, but some of them don't function very well under the stress of the actual event, and yet they're fantastic in the lead up, but you only find that out at the event. So then you have to, you know, sort of quickly put some other plans into place to deal with that. But other than that, yeah, I think the main one is hopefully that you've got the right quality of people working with you. Okay. I think that's good the way that you've described that, but I want you to give an example of, and you don't have to say names or event or places or anything, but just some something that you've had to quickly put into place because something's gone <laughs> wrong at an event. You're laughing now. <laughs> <laughs> I am. Yeah, yeah. I just, think it was. Well, you might you might need year, to give I a couple. Yeah. Yeah, I can't remember for sure which year of the DF it was. Whether it was the first year, it must have been the first year I ran it. And we'd changed the timetabling, like we switched around the dressage festival and the dressage and jumping with the stars. So dressage festival moved to December and we'd made that decision and then lo and behold, we had EI and all these things. And so anyway, come the event in December, we were running on a remarkably tight budget and it was like there might have been a $2,000 profit or something like that. It may not have been. It might have been break-even. I can't remember. But it was very tight. Anyway, Friday night, I think I went to bed in my caravan and I woke up with was a lone caravan. So I was in the caravan and the rain's dripping on me during the night and I'm thinking, oh, and I can hear it pelting on the roof, thinking this is not going to be good. (laughs) But all I knew was that if we had to cancel the event, we were going to lose a lot of money. So... I lobbed out next morning and a good friend of mine, Glenn Galt, and I, we were wandering around looking at the arenas. We didn't even have gumboots with us or anything like that. And I thought, okay, well, we've just got to make this work. And at some point, some poor man came up to me and said, oh, what are you going to do? And I said, oh, where do you come from? And he said, New South Wales. And I said, well, here in Victoria, we think this is really good because we've just had this long drought with no rain. And this poor man sort of looking at me like, I think I've found a found one that they've let out suddenly. (laughs) But it was interesting. I'm sure that if I'd gone out that morning and gone, oh, God, this is awful, we can't cope, da-da-da-da-da, the event would have been a disaster. Instead of which, you know, everyone got wet and filthy and all the rest of it. But it ran and it it actually made more money than we thought it was going to make and it was a successful event. Mm -hmm, mm Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Good, good. So thinking on your feet and just being optimistic. and, 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 yeah, yeah, you've got to to make sure that – If you're going to lead something, it's no good going around with a face like a boot. Mm. You've got to try and pretend that everything is great, whether it is or it isn't. Yep, yep. No, good. All right. Have you got a book that you would like to recommend, one that you've had, you know, been influential in in your training in everything that you've learned and something that you can recommend to other people? Oh, look, I mean, the thing with books is I think all books have relevance. I mean, I read very widely and sometimes the books that have the most relevance aren't even connected with horses. So it's, what can I say? Um, Recently, I mean, I've read Carl Hester's autobiography, Making It Happen. And, you know, like I found that really interesting because, again, he was a writer who came from a non, 
supportive background mm-hmm. in that not supportive equestrian-wise. And he was lucky enough that he worked with people who saw that he was prepared to work hard and that he was talented and they gave him opportunities, which he then made full use of, which was to his credit. And I see, you know, I often see people who have plenty of opportunities, but then they don't necessarily make use of them. Mm, mm. That's good. All right, moving forward, Carolyn, what are you looking forward to now? What does your future hold? I've just purchased a property here at Tatura and I moved on to that at the beginning of October. And so basically I'm looking forward to running my business out of my own property that, you know, I obviously need to work hard because I need to be able to make alterations to the property. Mm-hmm. And, you know, my horses are very happy here. They haven't, they're very happy because they've hardly done any work since I came here, but that's <laughs> about to change. <laughs> and certainly I'm also hoping or thinking about finding someone who would be interested in basically being a bit of an apprentice, a young rider or similar, who's prepared to work on the lines of, you know, they want to go on in the industry and they are prepared to work hard and I would like to be able to help and support somebody like that on this property too. Good, good. How many acres is the property? It's 20 acres. Okay, good. And it's always nice getting that arena in. I can remember where we are here, you know, the very first thing that was put in was the arena. So there was no house, no sheds, no yeah. fencing, yeah. you know. like Good when no, you prioritise. Yeah, <laughs> let's get the arena in, you know. Let's start to, yeah, um, yeah have somewhere to ride yeah. and um, somewhere yeah. to teach. Yes, yes. And being based, you know, like I've been in the Golden Valley now for just over two years and we're phenomenally lucky up here. There's a big horse industry. We've got great venues in the area like um, Satura Park has indoor undercover warm-up stables and there's plenty of major events that run there. There's also the facilities over at Elmore, which is only an hour away, which again, indoor, sand arenas, mm. stables, you know, and then Shepparton, Wod- Albury, Wodonga. So it's, you know, it's like people go, oh, when are you coming down to the ones around Melbourne? You go, yeah, yeah, but there's, we <laughs> have a lot of stuff up here. We don't necessarily need to drive two, three hours to Melbourne. Yes, yes. All right, Carolyn, can you sum up your philosophy into a lesson today? (laughs) The harder you work, the luckier you get. Yes, I've had that one before, actually. (laughs) Yes, it's interesting, isn't it? It's a fairly common one, I'm afraid. I can't think who it belongs to, but it's, yeah. Yeah, Where there's a will, there's a way. But certainly I think that it's always, you know, in this industry, hard work will get you a long way. Good, good. Now, Carolyn, how can people contact you? Phone, email. You want my phone numbers? Put, you can say them to me now, but we'll also put them yep. on your page, which will be horsechats.com slash Carolyn Colby. Okay. So at the mobile is 0432-505-774, and that's probably the best one at the moment because I'm still having an argument with Telstra over my <laughs> landline. Okay, then. <laughs> All right, that's good. And those details, as I said, will be on horsechats.com slash Carolyn Colby or just search for Carolyn. Okay, that's great, Carolyn. Well, hopefully we'll talk to you again sometime and thanks very much for your time today. It's been fantastic talking to you and um, hope to do it again. Many thanks, Glenna. Okay, bye. If you've enjoyed this chat, then please comment, rate and subscribe. If you'd like any changes or recommendations for guests, then please contact us through horsechats.com. And while you're online, have a look at the government-accredited courses at internationalhorsecollege.com. Registered Training Organisation 31352. Remember that our comments and instructions are general in nature. 
and do not take into consideration your individual horses or your individual ability and circumstances. If you enjoyed this podcast, then please leave your comment below.